You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to ACCA. It's a great pleasure to uh, welcome you this evening to the roundtable discussion Form Space Movement, um, held in conjunction with our current exhibition, Eva Rothschild Cosmos, um, which is a major new exhibition by um, Eva Rothschild, who is London-based, an Irish artist, um, encompassing a whole... Uh, range of recent work, a number of new commissions that she's created, especially for ECHA, alongside recent works to illustrate the scope and breadth of her sculptural practice and repertoire. Um, to begin with, I would like to sincerely acknowledge the Bunwurrung, the traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and we extend our respects to elders past and present, and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. Tonight we are pleased to welcome a stellar lineup of multidisciplinary practitioners working across art, architecture, design, choreography and theory to discuss the intersection of form, space and movement in contemporary practice. It's convened as a roundtable discussion with each of our guest speakers considering the social potential of sculpture, the idea of deceptive materiality, the negotiation of colour, form, scale and space and many other questions relating to our experience and consideration of sculpture. Each of our speakers will begin with a short presentation of their own work and offer a short response to the exhibition before joining the panel discussion that will be moderated and convened by Annabelle Lacroix to my left, who is ACCA's Curator of Public Programs. Before handing over to Annabelle, it is a great pleasure to introduce each of our guest speakers. Jane Court is an architect and co-founder of the multidisciplinary collective practice Sibling, Sibling are an architectural practice, a design office that works across diverse contexts, including building and architecture, works in the public realm and urban design, art installations, events, and exhibition design, among many other contexts. Jo Lloyd is a choreographer and dancer, and was most recently responsible for Cut Out, a new work that she conceived for 10 dancers in collaboration with Eva Rothschild, presented here within Eva's exhibition at ACCA. Jo is a current Australia Council for the Arts Fellow and has presented many award-winning works in theatres and gallery spaces in Australia and internationally over the past 15 years. Simone Slee is an artist and academic at the Victorian College of the Arts and until recently she was also head of sculpture at the VCA. Her work has its origins in sculpture and extends to installations, video, photography and objects that have a performative outcome or potential. Simone has exhibited widely in Australia and internationally, with recent solo exhibitions at Sarah Scout Gallery and the Margaret Lawrence Gallery at the University of Melbourne, among others. And finally, in alphabetical order, but sitting second last in the, um, in the proceedings, um, it's a great pleasure to welcome Fleur Watson, who is a curator and editor specialising in architecture and design. Fleur was recently appointed executive curator of the Lion House Museum, a new expanded um, Lion House Museum, a public space for contemporary art, design and art architecture that will open in early 2019. And from 2013 to 2018, Fleur has co-curated the exhibition program at Armand Head Design Hub, among many other projects. So it's now my pleasure to hand over to Annabelle and to, I'll ask you if you could join me please in welcoming our guest speakers this evening. Thank you, Max, um, and welcome, everyone. So this um, panel we will unfold in three parts. Uh, we'll now um, get straight into this first um, part uh, in which each of our speakers will um, 
present their work and their position and, and uh, give a, a short response to the exhibition. Uh, then we'll have a discussion um, all together. Um, and at the end, um, I'll hand out the microphone and um, you'll be able to ask some questions as well. Um, so now I'll just um, hand it over to you, Jane. Thank you. Um, I'm Jane from Sibling. Um, and I guess I just wanted to introduce our practice quickly because it's a little bit different to how a lot of um, more conventional architectural practices work, perhaps. Uh, we were lucky enough to start our practice in 2008, which corresponded with the GFC, um, when there really weren't that many traditional architectural projects going around. And we were really forced to practice architecture on our own terms and sort of create our own projects um, based on the type of practice that we wanted to have. We were a large group of um, architects and designers and I guess, you know, the old structures were sort of disintegrating around us and all these sort of new disruptive um, opportunities were coming into play, including open source sort of crowdfunding, um, collaboration, lots of bottom-up approaches to um, making projects happen. And so I guess some of the ways in which we practiced included making a film on the top right-hand side. We made a film that explored um, the history of participation um, in architecture over the last hundred years. Um, and a lot of our projects were situated in a gallery context and sort of explored how we could nurture um, social interactions. Uh, another um, opportunity that we had that really set us apart from maybe a traditional course was that we were uh, lucky enough to be given access to a warehouse space in Fitzroy um, where we made our own <laughs> space essentially and, and we folded sort of a workspace, a social space, an exhibition space uh, and a social space into this one building, um, which enabled a whole series of um, adjacencies and opportunities to arise. And I guess it, it gave way to us exploring how, how to make um, opportunities for the public to come into that space as well. So the top left-hand side looks at this door device that invited the public space into the front gallery. Um, and then as part of that project. I guess we learned how to build ourselves, which is something that architects don't always do. Um, and we also looked at um, the sort of legacy of that site becoming a building that was participatory and, and sort of did have um, an interaction with the public space below. Um, we, we we had a, several opportunities to use the gallery as a research platform. So this, this was at Melbourne Uni's Wunderlich Gallery where we were able to create a Faraday cage and look at um, the idea of disconnection um, with social interaction becoming so... Uh, well, I guess the, the Faraday cage blocks electromagnetic um, signals. So when you're inside it, essentially your phone doesn't work. And I guess we were just um, 
trying to make a statement about encouraging people to interact with each other in real life as opposed to being constantly distracted by devices. And I guess we borrowed heavily from Super Studio, who are avant-garde architectural group from the 60s in Italy, who also used this idea of um, an all-encompassing grid which sort of strides through the landscape um, uncritically, in a way. Um, but there's also opportunities for wildness and everyday life in between those spaces. And that motif of the grid is something that we use throughout our work to sort of acknowledge um, this um, insidious grid, in, but also provide opportunities for people to try and either utilise it for their own inhabitation or, uh, or potentially transcend it. So this grid was looking at um, the golden mean or a, a fractal-based opportunity um, that almost allows you to push through the grid itself. And we use that geometry for a series in 3D as well, um, a series of modular elements that the user could move around the space. And also, I guess, um, through these other geometric elements that um, really confound the spatial orientation of the user in a sensory way. Um, this project um, also looks at the grid, this sort of infinite expansion of Cartesian space and makes it solid in, in the uh, actual interior. But in this case, we're using it as a framework so people can customise their workspace um, and use it in a very utilitarian way. So, yeah, essentially all of these experiments that we did um, on this small scale um, become really useful elements that we can fold into our larger buildings, which is great. And, that's, and I guess we still maintain that gallery practice today. <laughs> but that's what I think. Hi. Is this working? Hi. My name's Simone Slee. Thanks, Jane. So interesting to see your work. And um, I'm, as Max mentioned, I'm a sculptor and I work next door at VCA. So I'm delighted to be here as a neighbour. And my practice has really centred around the idea of the performative sculpture. And I mean the performative sculpture not in the more theoretical term, but a sense of a sculpture that performs its coming into being. So I'm just really going to show you um, several, well, this is an older work that was an important work for me, and several more recent works, just to give you some sense of my concerns. Um, so I guess also in terms of what's so lovely about being here tonight is thinking about the work of Eva Rothschild and the role of the body in the production of sculpture. And that's something that's been a central concern of mine. Um, and in this particular work, in the, in, I guess uh, just to also kind of foreground one of the issues I've always had is trying to deal with what the problems of sculpture are. And I suppose I've been coming from a position of... Um, Rosalind Krauss talks about the logic of the medium. I don't know if you've heard about that, but in terms of 
art making and art production, it often talks about the rules of engagement or the conceptual structures around a particular medium like sculpture or painting. And whilst those mediums have been expanded significantly through the 20th century, um, that has always struck a chord with my particular practice. And one of the things, of course, one of the things that you have to do in art is work out um, what you're good at and then capitalise on that. And one of the things it turns out I was incredibly good at was that my sculptures always failed. They always fell over. So from the very beginning of being at art school, I would make their sculptures and they would collapse. And really by the time, 10 years out, I really thought that this was a great opportunity to capitalise on. And I guess in that, I'm also have a great respect for vulnerability and failure and what it is to make and remake a work. And so I guess that kind of transfers over to living, really. So this work called Make a Sculpture, Watch It Fall Down was a work that actually really began to consolidate this approach in my practice. And then I made a whole lot of works called prop series, such as um, I had a circular ring that's just simply made out of cardboard and what's called Spiegelfolie in Germany, which is very posh mirror foil. And I, in other instances, I'd use a cucumber to hold up the sculpture. And when the cucumber became shriveled and collapsed, then the sculpture would fall over. And likewise with this particular work, when the prop fatigued, the sculpture would collapse, and that's the moment of the sculpture. So those kind of conditions of what it is that holds thing up continues to be an ongoing concern. And more recently, um, I guess really it's not even recent now, five years ago, I made this series of work centered around hold, holding up. What is it that it takes to hold up in a sculptural context? So this is a work from Sarah Scout, which um, I produced for that particular show. And it really is a, a sense of, it's just a, um, a brass rod some bricks and a timber wooden band. And it's, it's the compression and the tension that actually holds and supports that particular object with the imminent threat that it could collapse, but it's always in that stasis of just being. Um, following on from that, in terms of my interest in the role of the body, I found that I became a part of the sculptural um, ensemble. And so I and my body became a prop in the construction of making a sculpture. And these works have kind of developed on, and I, it really, I guess, comes to the question in sculpture about what are the forces that actually produce form? What are those, what are those agencies um, in the making of a work? So um, these, I've, commenced a series of works called um, Rocks and Things, Happy to Help in my problem of making um, a sculpture and artwork. So I'll just, this is an install shot from my most recent show at Sarah Scout, which is a video performance work, which you'll just see here. Now, I believe if I do that, um, you can see um, the gravitational. The interesting thing about this work is the role the way that actually the sculptural ensemble, which includes my body, reveals the um, gravitational agency within the work itself. This is a particular film. I guess you call it a film. It goes for over... It's an ongoing loop, but it goes for over two hours in its um, production. So there's a sense of... Um, 
sustaining and being caught within a system and a loop that's never, you can never be released out of. Uh, just recently, and these concerns about what it is that it takes to hold up um, has been, has followed through in a new series of uh, glass and stone works that I've been producing where I've been, I simply, I mean I'm simply just squashing glass bubbles between rocks, but what's quite remarkable about, or what I'm finding really fascinating about this is the way, the forces and actions that act of the weight of rocks and other things that can then produce these sculptural effects within the glass. And in fact, like all of the concerns I have with the work, it's actually um, the vulnerable and the fragile, or what we perceive to be the vulnerable and fragile that maintains what it is to hold up in a broader context. So I'll just end on, um, these particular works. And just, I'll talk about this later when we have the conversation, but one, one thing I was delighted about when being in the work with Eva Rothschild is also the questions that surround the making of the work and the way the body and movement actually continues to form and then unform and then remake the work. So I'll hand over to you next. Fine, I've got my own. Oh, you Thank, have got Thank you, Simone. Um, I firstly must apologise for the quality of my voice tonight, so I'll, I'll try and push on um, through this croaky, husky voice. Um, I might need the clicker. Oh, you do. That's <laughs> Thank you. Um, I approached this. Uh, Annabelle and Max very kindly sent us a number of texts to read. Um, one of them was the catalogue text. So as a way of kind of trying to organise the projects that I've been involved in, most of which are highly collaborative, I thought I'd take some ideas from those texts and try and frame it in that. Um, so the first one is this idea of a flickering sense of materiality and presence that's um, present in Eva's work. And this is a project that I did very early on as a very young curator with some um, architects called March Studio. It was for the State of Design Festival in um, 2008, I believe, off the top of my head. And it was really this idea of trying to create this non-architectural space, if you like, through this kind of singular material of the yellow trace paper as a kind of um, moment in time. This lasted really only for three nights duration. It had a very kind of momentary presence. It was actually very low tech in that it was all um, constructed by hand. And so I felt that it really spoke to this idea of um, a flickering materiality and presence. More recently, we worked with the architects Baracko and Wright at RMIT Design Hub and with the artists Philip Smartsis and um, Madeleine Cornish on a project called Superfield. And this was about trying to bring into the gallery space the idea of remoteness, the kind of idea of remoteness through sound and in this very particular, very authored gallery space. So again, this kind of um, almost immaterial materiality, a kind of flickering that's evidence um, more through the shadows than the objects themselves. Now, I've got a few slides. I'm going to click through quite 
quickly. Um, but the other idea that I wanted to pick up on was this idea of defensive architecture or walls and boundaries. So this is a project with other architects. It was really responding to um, a very uh, quoted statistic a couple of years ago, which was by 2050, Melbourne would outgrow Sydney um, as Australia's major city. Um, we don't actually have that much land left. So how can we, without spreading out and out and out, and we all know that's unsustainable, so how can we use the spaces that we have better? So in this case, the walls that literally divided the space um, architecturally intersected the gallery space, um, created a defensiveness, but also an openness, an openness to kind of carve spaces within them, to create interiors, to create spaces in between. Oh, sorry. And you can see here how that wall takes on a defensive quality, whereas the slide before has a much more embracing quality, a much more generous quality. The other idea was this notion of gathering and collectiveness. This is a project we did with sibling architecture actually very recently called Workaround with uh, Round working on the graphics. And it was really trying to identify, there were not objects in this exhibition at all. It was trying to identify a movement of women practitioners, primarily spatial practi practitioners, who were not working in conventional ways. And we really saw this as an activist project. It was trying to highlight this movement that we saw was emerging in architecture and design. So the space is really designed to be broken apart, that kind of authored quality of it where it comes together in that beautiful composition is very quickly broken apart. Um, it's used in a very messy, ad hoc way. So that kind of idea of composition is very um, transient. It can be easily intersected and shifted and changed. Um, and just going back to Occupy for a moment, again, this idea of gathering within the wall or around tables or spaces in between. The other idea I picked up from the catalogue was this idea of signs and slogans and banners. Eva talks about that being part of the fabric of the city and in, she takes that further and talks about it in terms of textiles. Here we were working with the graphic design practice experimental jet set who were really talking about the fact that graphic language has been a strong part of our urban condition through various movements, whether they're through billboards or slogans or other graphic um, material that is transient in our cities. So this exhibition really took key movements in time. One of them was the Provo movement, a very short movement over, only over a few years. Um, and took the material that was generated from that movement um, as a kind of archive of that period in time. So again, it really showed how signs and banners um, reflect who we are at that point in time in a particular city. And then finally, I wanted to talk about um, the uh, act of inviting in other practitioners, in this case, choreography. So going back to um, Occupied, we invited uh, Atlanta Eek, who I know has worked here with you at ACCA before with Max, um, to imagine the city of Melbourne in a hundred years time. And here she kind of um, 
bled through the spaces of Design Hub as though Design Hub was underwater, as though we were in a kind of um, post-environmental crisis and teased out those issues that Occupy was trying to deal with in terms of a more rapid, responsive, adaptable approach to architecture in the city through her intervention through choreography. And going back to a very, very early project in a community project that I uh, was involved in called Pinup Architecture and Design Project Space, we really took that notion even further with the idea of the kind of dramaturg, uh, dramaturg. So in this case, it was a warehouse in Collingwood and we invited a number of practitioners to kind of occupy that space with a performance of some kind that would extract their work into a different realm that they were used to practising in. This was Lucy McRae, and she um, created a set that was a kind of precursor, a test, if you like, for her um, speculative project, which was called Swallowable Perfume. But the whole project was really constructed through this performance rather than through the set or the object itself. Thank you. Thank you, Fleur. There's already lots of resonance with the exhibition which we can unpack after this. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jo Lloyd. Um, so I was fortunate to uh, create Cutout, as Max explained in the um, introduction in relation to Eva's exhibition. Um, so I'm a Mel Melbourne-based choreographer. I also perform in my work and in the work of others, and um, I've spent... Um, time with other artists in visual arts, um, in, you know, theatre makers, and I guess with other dancers that are in my work, but also, yeah, that we sort of come together in my work to create the work together in a lot of ways, like the contribution of the other performers in my work is huge. Um, yeah, but also separately in duet forms. Um, so this piece, um, was recently performed Overture at Arts House. Um, and Deanne Butterworth is there at the front. <laughs> Myself, Beck Jensen and Sean Law, who also performed in Cutout. Um, another shot, a promo shot from, for Overture. And this is a, a work from 2015 called Confusion for Three, which um, I guess set a tone for myself as a maker in terms of um, how I was approaching uh, preparing for performance. So I'd shifted from um, a certain mode of making exact choreography that was repeatable to um, making work where choices were made in live performance. And I was more fascinated with, I guess, the risk and the negotiation in live performance. And this piece, um, I'm just revisiting at the moment. and. Um, it's quite fascinating because it, it means that I'm working out whether it's, it's as solid as it might have been in the <laughs> initial stages. Working out whether the mechanisms in place actually still work. Um, uh, yeah, so that's something that's um, carried on, I guess, in terms of investigating how I could prepare for cutout and um, for this, this performance that just happened. Uh, this is a promo shot for cutout which in actual fact um, was like a, a, a small development in itself. So doing the photo shoot and developing the imagery for the work, um, which also involved um, Andrew Trelaw, who worked on the costumes for this shoot, um, and all the performers except for maybe two of you that couldn't be there. Um, 
and it, it felt like we'd already started to discover how to, to go about making cutout. And this was quite an interesting process for me because it was um, subtracted or cut out from Eva's work, but in a lot of ways, the research was the groundwork for the work. So everything I could gain or gather and respond to that I knew of Eva, even before meeting her, came into play for this. Um, so I liked the solutions, I liked the problems um, in terms of this collaboration, I guess. Um, what else? Oops. Uh, this is a work with Deanne Butterworth for M Pavilion on like a 42 degree heat day, a two hour durational work. And it was another example of a, an opportunity or a situation that would never ever appear again. And I think um, in collecting these images and preparing for this evening, I was thinking a lot about cutout and one of the moments where I realised after the performance that it would never ever, I mean most performances could never ever occur exactly the same, but the things that came up on the Monday night in here, um, you know, we could prepare only so much for and then the context of course has a massive shift when um, people enter the space and the audience becomes part of the work and I think that was the most thrilling thing to have to solve. And in this situation, it was 42 degrees and we had two hours and it was a very, um, yeah, uh, incredible experience because we were damn hot <laughs> and fatigued and that's interesting what it does to your brain when you're trying to dance in that heat. Um, and then this was a work in re response to um, Stephen Brahms' exhibition within Melbourne Now, which, you know, I was invited to engage with uh, with Nicola Gunn over uh, almost 12 hours. And so I guess this is just another example of perhaps um, augmenting the, the context or the situations and the, the parameters that present themselves within different spaces and galleries being one of those spaces. Um, and I guess my interest in that is that it keeps asking something of me as a, a dance maker, somebody who works a lot from um, my own body, but also in relation to the other bodies that I invite into the work. So it, it, it makes me continually um, look at what the form can do um, and, again, look at how I prepare for performance. So I think that's my main fascination um, and now we'll, we'll get into the discussion, but um, we'll also screen um, the documentation of Cut Out uh, just silently in the background um, so that you can uh, have a, a bit more of a continuous sort of feel for the piece. Um, but thank you, um, everyone, for this presentation. It really gives a great sense of, um, of these notions of form and movement and architecture and how how all of these things are sort of coming together and how there's great connection also between your practices. Um, and as we just saw cut out, I thought maybe I'll, I'll start by asking you um, a question, Joe, and um, thinking that um, Eva Rothschild's practice has been really talked about in terms of materials and often um, this idea of pure joyous material possibility. Um, and I found that's also um, an expression that kind of resonates with 
uh, Kada and your work. Um, could you tell us a bit more about um, the, this idea of joy and also materials um, in Cutout? Um, I guess, you know, joy sort of brings about certain hopefulness or um, frivolity and maybe m my go-to is, um, I guess, having liberty or play or, um, f yeah, freedom, I guess. And so I guess in this process there was a lot of that to a degree where, you know, I worked separately but also very much in consideration of the work and there was um, a lot of time contemplating how to approach it and I think my biggest top of the list was respect. So I just thought I, I, I want to bring a sense of respect but in doing that it wasn't about being really gentle and you know, respecting um, space and um, her work in, in the way of, you know, I didn't want to break anything. But um, there were some practical things, but also just in terms of respecting what I witnessed in terms of her craft and her effort. And so I was trying to, in some ways, meet that, not in a competitive way, but just sort of collide with that. And so when the work started to arrive and she started to install, the epic nature of them really struck me and I started to think, okay, we have to, we have to really find this. And it sort of had its own will in terms of what the work um, needed, what the content was. So some things I'd worked on maybe two years ago that hadn't really arrived and been the right thing for other works suddenly became, it became clear this is, this, this is the time to um, work that. And so I think in terms of joy also, there's a lot of liberties that the other performers have in the work and that's a responsibility also. But I think the joy comes in solving and negotiating those things live. And so half of the performers hadn't performed my work before. They'd been involved in my processes, but there was a lot of responsibility um, given to them, which is also quite joyous and you know, quite terrifying at the same time. But um, that, was, that was something that I was really excited to see unfold. And there's um, a sense of restriction in a way when we enter the gallery at first with um, the first work, Hazard, and how our movement is really um, contrived throughout the space. Um, how did you negotiate these ideas of restriction in relation to um, the work and what you could can't do and how did that impact your ideas in the making? Uh, I guess they became um, the landscape. And, you know, I, I, in rehearsal I'd often talk about Planet Eva and um, <laughs> she said, I don't know what my children would think of that, but, you know, I thought that was quite fun. So we spent time at the substation rehearsing and so this idea of the real and the imagined is always in what I do, like the imagination is working as hard as the physical and the language that I use around the um, parameters for the choreography um, have to resonate. So a lot of what happened once we got here and how I considered the spatial layout of the works and I, you know, kept tuned in with, you know, everyone on the install when things started to change, um, that steered a lot of things but also I really liked this idea of um, meeting it or colliding with it but with respect. So um, they were brutal, they're brutal materials and there was something about the physicality that was also brutal but also very special and personal, and I guess I'm interested in in that exposure, yeah, um, 
And, you know, some of those moments like where we're vocalising or we're doing this really heavy-duty material that's really muscular, um, I guess it can come across as aggressive or disrespectful. And um, that, was, that was something I considered highly. So, um, which I think is an exciting little precipice, yeah. Yeah, it was really a meeting, as you said, between the, your work and the sculptures as opposed to um, a negotiation or that word meeting, I think, is really, really nice way to frame it. And we can see how in, um, in the exhibition there are different styles of sculptures. Um, how Eva has um, sort of is demonstrating um, a kind of dialogue between classical forms of sculpture, between open and closed forms, um, between color um, and shape, and also between line and, and volume. And um, Simon, you talked about the idea um, or the question of the problem of sculpture. How do you think that Eva is, is tackling that in her exhibition? Well, um, thanks, Annabelle. <laughs> I think there's a range of different ways, and I think in terms of um, what might be the problems of sculpture, I guess I come back to, um, for me in particular, thinking about my own work, and then also what I'm seeing here is, um, what are the kinds of forces that produce sculpture? And I guess what... I'm looking here at this exhibition, but I'm also harkening back to the first time that I saw Eva Rothschild's work, which was in the Sydney Biennale. I'm not sure if everyone's seen it, but there's a really amazing sculptural video work she produced called Boys and Sculpture. Are people familiar with that video work? Just briefly. Uh, it is quite amazing. There's, it's in the Whitechapel Gallery. It was commissioned um, in 2012, and she produced a series of objects not and not dissimilar to a lot of the plinth-based sculptures here in the show. So you have classical um, sculptural forms on spidery plinths, and there she invited maybe about 12, do you know, six to 12, maybe 12 boys from about the age between six and 12 to come into the gallery space. And she gave them a very simple brief where she, it's very, I think she also has boys herself. Yes. Yeah. Um, so she gave them a very simple brief where they were to look at the works for as long as they could bear it, but, and they were also able to negotiate the works through touch, which I think is also interesting in terms of a sculptural problem because of the way sculptors make work often through touch or deliberately choose not to use touch. So uh, in the proceed, and the other um, criteria she gave them was they weren't allowed to get into trouble, <laughs> which was kind of fabulous. So over the I'm not entirely sure how long that film is, but over a period of time, you see these skittish um, boys running around with high energy through the gallery, beginning to dismantle the work. T firstly, kind of tentatively looking, circling, circling, and then um, they become more uh, ambitious, maybe, and more taking more risk, and they begin to touch it until they begin to grab the totem full of which is a totem of ball-shaped structures that I'd say are probably had the sequined forms on them. And they begin to shake this totem until it begins to come apart and they kick 
they kick the balls around and finally through the destruction, they actually end up destroying the exhibition. But what's so beautiful is not only do they destroy that through movement, these particular works, which is a force, they begin to reconstruct different components. So I guess in that particular work, in terms of the problems of sculpture, there's a, there's a kind of literal playing out of the way, um, of the forces and energy of um, the human, or and in this case boys, can actually both then take the work apart, unmake it, and then remake it into something new again. And I guess what also struck me about seeing this show, and also the work at there's also a beautiful work of hers on the third floor at the NGV at the moment called An Array. Um, and it also struck me particularly with the work Cosmos here. The viewer, it's actually the viewer in one of the kind of dialogues between in sculpture has been about the role of the relationship of the viewer in terms of it, how they construct the work in their, through their own visual and perceptual experience of it through time. So as you come into Cosmos, again, you begin to you approach it at the one instance it actually seems as if it's a black sculpture with this gleaming um, form, and then it actually activates you to continue to move around. I mean, I found that I'm circling. I'm, it actually generates a particular movement that is beyond my own kind of will, and as I move, it takes me through, and I begin to see the way the sculpture reveals itself. So it begins to... You move, you look behind, you see the purple and the red and the colour. You continue to move, that shifts again to another kind of form, colour. So she's using colour, shapes and forms to keep the body moving and you, in your mind, begin to form and unform and remake the sculpture as you move around it. It's also a lovely example in the work um, Anna Ray up there at the NGV, which is... Actually, Max just told me it was... Based on the raft of Medusa. Um, however, it's a beautiful black acrylic sheet plinth that's elevated, and on this plinth, it's a tableau of her classical signature forms. She's got solid black corrugated columns. Um, again, these Rio bars that frame the space in rectangular forms. There's they're platonic, you know, they are platonic shapes. Yet as you begin to move and circle around that particular work again, at once the um, what seems solid becomes unsolid. So you see the solidness of the column, but in fact the glistening of the light and the way the light reflects off the black, the shadow becomes the object that's more solid than what you than the actual object itself. The Rio bars begin to frame as if they're, you get an uncanny visual sense that maybe they're a mirror and then you're kind of taking another take on that as well. So and I guess in terms of those materials, the body is not, it's not just the materials of steel or, um, or high gloss duco paint or the jessamite that she used. It's also the body and the specificity of the bodies that she includes in the social space. I think that's the lovely thing about the stools in this work, which is an untitled work in the exhibition, but um, the stools, our bodies become the plinth on those and they can mobilise around the space. Yeah, the stools are really interesting because um, they are really aiming at slowing the viewer down in the exhibition and Often when we talk about sculpture, we think about um, movement and the three, the three dimensions of the sculpture and how one can go around it, but we, for we often forget that dimension of time. Yeah. And I think the stools are 
a great sign within the exhibition um, that invite the viewer to to slow down and um, and consider the work through time. Yeah. yeah. There's a lovely thing when she said about sculpture is almost an anachronistic but absolutely vital in this sort of screen-based speed lifestyle that we do, yeah. And it, listening to your experience of, uh, of you in the gallery, it sounds like Eva is almost sort of controlling your movements through the I, space. Yeah, I think she is. Yeah, yeah. she is. Um, and it sort of like leads me to think about... Um, the work that you're doing, Jane, with theming and the, um, your inspirations through the grid. And um, I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, tell us a bit more about how you think how grids also have this, um, how control can be also embedded within those forms um, around geometry and grids and how that um, occur in, the, in this exhibition. Yeah, so I, I know I've already mentioned the fact that we kind of use the grid as a motif of omnipresent power, technological power, structures through space, um, and I guess, yeah, how insidious they are, but maybe how we can maybe offer opportunities to inhabit those grids or to take, to take those power structures back um, and ultimately potentially transcend them. Um, and I think I didn't show some of the examples that some of the ways we do that is by using um, sport motifs as well or languages that people sort of understand as a mode of participation or, or a mode of play that might encourage people to um, engage with their spatial surroundings um, with a sense of agency and, and start to move the spaces around to suit the, the, the way they want to use that space. And I think Eva um, obviously uses motifs such as these throughout her work as well. Um, for example, her street barricades, which are almost the ultimate spatial control device, have this sort of sense of play or they almost invite a climbing upon. Um, we find empty nitrous bulbs sort of hidden behind some piles of rubble, which sort of indicate that those power structures have actually been utilised as a recreation or perhaps transcendental moment. Um, and even the, the Rio that's, you know, that usually forms the basis of, of the most monumental structures in our built environment, but here they're, they're almost like a post-riot or destructed kind of force. So I think that um, she offers a whole series of, um, of uh, clues as to how those, those structures could be reappropriated as well. And the motif of the grid is almost something that also connects the artworks between, between them. Um, and Eva has talked um, also quite a bit about controlling where the eye goes within the exhibition. Um, and she, she says that for her, that sort of control is, is kind of playing on, um, on the viewer to engage with materiality and how um, there's a, almost a notion of speed between um, the, the different artworks, between um, the different textures in the work. Um, and that way we can see um, how sight lines Really do connect the work um, in in the in the show, and um, that also reminds me of, of acts of curating and how objects um, 
are uh, together in a space and um, maybe Fleur you could uh, tell us a bit more about how, how do you think about these um, objects being together and how they connect in exhibition spaces? Well I, I mean ironically I'm not I rarely deal with objects or haven't at least in the past so often um, the work that I've been involved in and working with others has been about almost manifesting the object to allow the object to emerge. So in that way, there is a different approach, but I do see a, a kind of um, synergy here. And when you were talking, Joe, earlier about the real and the imagined, that really resonates with me because I think there is control in this exhibition, but also I heard Eva talking with, with Max at the NGV and, and talking about not wanting to be didactic. So while there is this kind of um, control in terms of um, really responding to the architecture itself, and in this space you can see that specifically with the two works that are commissioned for this space, I think there is... Um, uh, what to me is really interesting, and I'm kind of extrapolating this a little bit, is that idea of the dramaturg. So you kind of have a, a level of control in setting up the conditions, but then you l allow that control to be dismantled. And obviously something like boys and sculpture is, is at one extreme of that end. Um, so for me that's really interesting because um, I guess what I'm interested in and particularly looking at architecture and design and contemporary art all together as a, a separate creative practices, but intersecting creative practices, is when we look at exhibiting, what are we um, learning about ourselves and, and what are we kind of reflecting about our place in the world? Now, obviously, that's different according to each exhibition, but I think when you have that kind of um, very clear intent that the artist may have or um, working with the curator they might have together, um, but you allow that kind of porosity around it. And I think we can see that particularly with the work that you move through and you completely change with your body as you move through those thresholds. Then we allow ourselves to bring our imagination to that work and that becomes the real and the imagined, which I think is really powerful and we can start to kind of speculate um, within and around and in between the work. Um, so for me that's something that I'm still really grappling with, to be honest, and still testing and trying with, with each exhibition and everybody I work with, but it's somebody, um, it's something that I feel is really, um, when it happens, it's really powerful, it's, it's very exciting. And I guess it's also where um, play comes and intersect with control and that's something that you're all quite interested in in your work um, and I think you've um, talked a little bit before about how, um, play and how that can be used to think through practice. Um, is that something that um, you could unpack or respond to, um, that sort of play within, within the work? To anyone. <laughs> I could kick off, Go but then ahead. you take it. Um, I mean, I guess play depends on context, and um, sometimes that play has a, a kind of 
iterative, iterative nature in that you're trying to test something and you're unfolding those ideas. Um, I think play can also be quite explicitly activist at times. And I think that that is something that's, um, you know, starting to be um, really explored in the exhibition space is how play can have an activist agenda. Um, and certainly in the exhibition, I showed work around a lot of... Um, that was a kind of uh, set, if you like, for a series of broadcast episodes that unfolded in the gallery. But each one was a kind of daily exhibition of play, if you like. But all of those um, episodes had a very playful yet serious intent. But it didn't have to have an end. It didn't have to have a kind of culmination. The whole point was that you could experiment through play. Um, so for me, that's something that we've been really kind of testing and, and shaping in the exhibition space. So I think in this show, this idea of play is, in the way that it activates the body is important, but also just listening to the way she produces work in the studio. And I suppose just empathising with that, with my own particular practice, that play is often a central methodology in the production, or one of these forces within the production of work. And so the great thing about play when you let it rip within the practice is that you come up with aberrant, um, you rub up against, you come up with aberrant outcomes that rub up and reveal to you what the conventions actually are. One of the most, I think, I, I do remember reading a really beautiful article on Fishley and Vice and their sausage works. I don't know if people know those works. But the idea that they would play with food totally contravenes um, the social codes of becoming a civilised person. And it's the classic thing that a child... The brilliant thing about children is that they will bring things together in a way that are not socially codified and brings to our awareness what is what those codes actually are. So in that Fishley and Vice article I remember reading, you know, the child always gets in trouble for playing with food because of the significance of food and what it is, what its value is in terms of nourishment and the associated wastefulness. Yet those strategies of play are the things that can reveal the codes that we, that are often, um, you know, we abide by, yet we're not fully aware of. So that's, I think, the kind of activist attribute of play um, that can come through here. And I think in terms of the way she generates that, and it was really clear in the boys and sculpture work, where there's this beautiful interview with the boys after the fact, and they were just so excited by the fact that they'd had this opportunity. Uh, it was a very liberating experience for them, and they were also riffing off what girls would have done by comparison. It was a very gendered conversation. <laughs> um, however, one little boy said something about how incredible it was this creative process of destruction would lead to a new formation of a new object. And so he was able to generate that through that process of unmediated play. Just to respond to that quickly, because I think that's, that's right, the play is open-ended and generous. I think I get a little bit um, suspicious, the right word, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure when play is kind of framed as participation just for the sake of it. And when it's about spectacle and about 
capturing those interactions. For me, then, the play becomes very benign. Um, maybe that's okay, but, but I think the point is that the kind of play you're talking about has this kind of open-ended, generous, generous um, ability to use that as a mode of thinking about things, testing ideas, um, shifting things, pushing them over, using the sculpture as a ball, rather than this kind of organised participatory type of activity which feels more controlled. Mm -hmm. I agree very... with that. There's a generativeness with play that actually produces the unexpected. That's why it's exceptionally, uh, an exceptionally useful strategy as an artist in the making of work. Yeah, yeah I feel like these ideas are quite internalised um, within the viewer in the exhibition because we are not asked to play with these objects. We actually have to have a, a, a quite um, serious behaviour in the exhibition as a viewer. And so I feel like um, Eva is kind of placing these ideas within us by placing works that you can interact with um, and maybe sit on or touch and that some that you can't. Um, so I feel like there's she creates that tension, um, which is quite interesting as a, um, as a viewer. Um, and there was a, that um, idea also made me think about um, one of the work um, called Organic Threat, which is um, in the, at the back of the gallery and this idea of activism um, and, the, and value and how in, throughout the exhibition there's ideas of, um, of value in what, what is left over um, in some of the um, small cassette objects um, in the in the tower of um, of tape that the artist casts in her studio that are um, leftover um, material that she often uses uh, and continues casting these objects. Um, and I thought also that kind of resonates um, with uh, Yujo and and Cutout and the idea of urbanism um, and how that work is. Um, is, is quite raw and how maybe that um, resonates with, um, with your ideas and perhaps you could sort of explain your um, methodology around greed and uh, the connection with the city uh, and how that connects with Eva's work. Um, I guess maybe like coming into it through the, the play kind of discussion, also just, um, you know, the performance is in a public place and, um, you know, there's permission in public in a lot of ways, but there's also a sense of disaster or, you know, um, things going wrong. So I guess um, putting propositions to myself and the other nine performers, this sense of attempting certain things and through the attempt these... Um, these disasters can occur, but also that we have permission to play. And um, uh, there's something also in this piece that, you know, stretches on through a few previous works also about, you know, the body and how we represent certain symbolic things or um, the heavy issues around gender and augmenting our perception of um, what this flesh is and what that touch means and if I do this gesture and I, you know, swallow up the whole gesture with my entire body, then how does that resonate with that person next to me or how does that resonate in relation to the sculptures or the landscape? And I guess the play in terms of 
that in performance, attempting to um, undo what we know in terms of the, some of these gestures. If I grab my crotch or if I do... You know, these are obvious things that we can all connect to in terms of representation, but how can you augment them, um, you know, body as landscape? And, and I don't know, I think that was a lot of what was at play and these attempts really fascinate me because then the attempt is the choreography and then the choreography is the attempt to do what? Like one of the best moments was when somebody... I said, oh, I'm working on this at the moment, and they said, oh, in relation to that work, yeah. And they said, why? Why are you doing choreography for that? And it was really pronounced, you know, this moment, and I didn't really have a clear answer, but um, I kept investigating what I would want to do. And so it was just one person's perspective. Another choreographer would approach it completely differently, and I think that was what I was really fortunate to be able to do. Um, so the last thing you said that I needed to get into... <laughs> I was just thinking... Um about ideas uh, of the city oh, yes. um, and urbanism and, and also how in the costumes we see these um, uh, columns and the idea of runes in Eva's work and, and the value in what's left over and that, how that connects with your work. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, of course, history and also um, what that ties to for the viewer. Um, these images are bold, they're pronounced, they're loaded. Um, and I guess also what was interesting, this idea of inscriptions on the body, you know, Elizabeth Gross talks about that, and I, I've always been really interested, you know, if I stand there next to, say, Sean here, oh, is that Sean? No, Sean, um, who you see in the footage, I've worked with a lot, and so if I stand next to him, completely stripped of any inscriptions in terms of, you know, items of clothing, you know, we've already got many representations. We're already dealing with it's a loaded body. So as a, as a performer, as a body investigating what, what actions are readable, what, what's being said, it's, it's, um, it's quite interesting to have these costumes that came with the exhibition and Andrew Trelaw worked to, um, you know, manifest these costumes that Eva had, vi had a vision for. And then it was also about how Andrew and I work a lot in terms of choreographing the costumes. So... Um, we, you know, would work through the piece and work out what, what belonged where or how do we work with the garments, how do we, you know, distribute them on the sculptures. And so all these, these um, behaviours at play were really considered and um, so in some ways these garments that came with Eva and her work were also something that we had to meet and negotiate and, and um, they, they laid a... A, a very strong visual, and that was that was that was a different experience, and I think it was it was quite it was quite good f f for us to work with that. Yeah. Um, it might be time, um, considering we have such a breadth of knowledge here, to open um, to the floor and and maybe see if uh, any of you um, have any questions you would like to ask the panel or. Maybe you would have questions for each other um, as well. So um, I have the mic here. Does anyone has a question to start off? Um, well, I had a, actually another question perhaps for Jane um, because it was quite interesting how in uh, 
within your work, you, you really identify and, and kind of unpack um, what happens in spaces and the value of space. And I was wondering um, if you could perhaps talk about how you might identify different kinds of spaces in the exhibition, thinking about how you work with, literally with space, but also questioning political, social, different kinds of spaces. Yeah, um, I think this is a bit of a cop-out, <laughs> but I think it's just so many references and so complex. It's an incredibly heterogeneous sort of set of references, and I think um, that was one of the strengths of Joe's work as well. There were so many, yeah, things that you could recognise from so many different realities and cultural references and all coming together, and I, that was just a really joyous union for me in a way. <laughs> I've got a question for Joe. Um, Joe, when you were working, were there specific actions or forms that were generated by the sculptures when you were improvising in the space? Uh, I'm glad you asked this because one thing that I had from the word go was something that Eva talked about to do with renewal and collapse and the, um, how it's indistinguishable in some of her works. And physically, that was a really powerful um, set of you know, ways of describing the work, but also it resonated immensely. So um, it, just, it just carried through, I guess, the, the idea of renew and collapse. Um, and I think, yeah, it's pretty massive in terms of how we're living at the moment. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was there in the physicality. And I guess I, look, uh, I work a lot with sort of the energy states and the, the transmission or the communication between us as performers. So sometimes those things collapse and then you have to solve them in the performance. Yeah. So were there some works that were um, more of a potent registration for you to behave like that in the space or was that a, a more generalised approach to the... Um, the entire gallery space? Uh, it was clear which spaces we inhabit um, and it was both. Yeah. So some things just, you know, I thought, oh, I can't do that, that's a cliche. Um, we can't just pass someone over a border, that's, you know, epic. Yeah, okay. But then I just thought, well, we need to try this. And then, like, the cosmos, you know, it invites you in, you know, your curiosity is, I want to go and stand in there. You know, so a lot of questions about what to do with them or, you know, what am I permitted to do in terms of touch or... Um, so spending time and I guess I was hoping that even though it was an hour, that somehow that hour represented maybe a longer period. Um, and I guess I work a lot with Annie Mokotow at the back there and um, she brought up something in a development and the term shared fictions came up and I think a lot of the time what is at play is perfectly described as a shared fiction between the performers and so the fictitious nature of this landscape um, was, was, I guess, specific. Some of those sculptures played a specific role in that but also just um, they became where we spent time. So, Joe, just on that um, idea of the shared fictions, yep. before, before we came onto the panel you were talking about there's obviously the work in the show that you're responding to, but also the audience and the way that mm. the audience is moving. Mm. Does 
the fact that you've developed these shared fictions between yourselves and the other dancers help you make those spatial decisions? You were talking about having to kind of make mm. decisions at that moment in time of how the work might shift or evolve. Does that, does, does the fact you've developed this shared narrative or fiction help you to mm. make those decisions in the moment? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the rehearsals leading up to this and a lot of the methods, uh, um, the way I conduct things is often me <laughs> speaking the whole entire time and directing as we go. And so that had to, you know, fall away because that's not how I want to reveal the work. And then, um, so in some ways, the, the, the responsibility goes on to the performers and the context un unveiled, you know, in terms of... Um, her Eva's work, but also we had the huge factor of people coming to watch, and that contribution was huge because it's unknown, and that's thrilling and also problematic. But those problems uh, are part of the choreography. So, in in the performance, then we all have to be equipped or we, we're prepared for these unknowns, and you know that's they become part of the landscape, and you know. <laughs> They're like a bank of shrubs or bushes that we have to get through or, you know. So moments where it's like, this wasn't the plan, you know, but the plan with the audience can never be known. So, you know, like, okay, what are we going to do now? And before you know it, you're making choices and they were all brilliant at that. <laughs> but I hoped that I'd prepared them for, I don't know. Yeah, that process interesting. <laughs> but, yeah, they, the audience is the sculpture too, right? So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know. And it goes back a bit to that idea we were talking about earlier about control but porosity around, mm. around the edges of it, perhaps. I think what that also brings up for me as you were speaking about that is that the sculpture, the object is not just what the sculpture produces. It actually produces the way we enact ourselves around them, but also that, that particular space, the psychological space that it brings within the field that you are in. Mm, for me, that resonates with um, this idea of making space, how Eva has talked about some of her uh, sculptures um, not in... Taking space literally has a volume um, that exists in either in public space or in the gallery, but how her work can literally and, and figuratively um, make space. And I think that's a really beautiful way to sort of sum up her, her work, how... Um, these notions are often talked about in, in sort of in-between terms. It's in between um, the works, in between the movement and, and static, um, in between forms. Um, but actually, this sort of in-betweenness is really a, a strength, and it, that's where the, the work lies. That's, that's where um, all of the ideas really are, are becoming really crystallized. Um, Please join me in, in thanking our speakers and we can gather around a glass of wine tonight. You have been listening to an ACCA podcast recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit aka.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.